I so love the sound of the children. Isn't that enthusiasm? Awesome. The way they run to each other and run into this church building. And I love to see how they're, not that the parents are reluctant, but I love to see the kids leading the parents. And uh, also love knowing the quality of instruction that's going on there. And, uh, you know, we're not so much looking for volunteers in our children's ministry as, as people who are ready to open their hearts to be enriched by these young children. They really are. What an amazing resource. And uh, they are being fitted to serve the kingdom of God in their generation. So, so exciting. Um, we're in this series on the new you in Christ. And it's uh, Ephesians 1 is about bringing heaven to earth. But then uh, the theme is then applied to heaven coming down into our own lives. Uh, and it's like my, my favorite statement of a eulogy was, was of this guy named Richard Sibbs. He was a famous preacher in the 1700s. And they said of him, they said, heaven was in him before he was in heaven. <laughs> I think we all should covet that. <laughs> the people would say, heaven was in us before we were in heaven. And how does that happen? It doesn't happen, we don't drift into that. Um, we have a battle to fight because we've got this shadow self that is still there um, fighting against us. Uh, and we've got lies that we are tempted to believe and fall into, and we've got to put those off. We've got to not only stop listening to untruths, but we've got to also speak truth, both to ourselves uh, and to others, and put on that, that new self. Uh, and so uh, I want to read to you this whole passage. We're especially going to look at verse 29, and we've been looking at how potentially negative emotions, unrighteous anger, not all anger is unrighteous, but unrighteous anger and then bitterness can settle into us. And when that happens, uh, we will not be speaking good words. Um, that fruit doesn't make the tree good. It's a good tree that makes good fruit. It's the root. And so this is about rooting ourselves in that new reality uh, and seeing those emotions refined by Jesus as we bring them to him. Uh, and then what we speak out becomes a source of grace and healing and strength. So uh, here, as I read to you, uh, the very word of God, beginning at verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's bow again. 
Father, these are your perfect, inerrant, unchanging words. Let only that lodge into our hearts and be spoken that serves your words that never change. Open ourselves to receive all of this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was stumbled across a little book about Albert Einstein, and it says uh, that Albert Einstein, he was born March 14th in 1879 in Ulm, Germany, uh, and he seemed like just an ordinary, chubby, uh, thick hair was there uh, from birth, but it was black, not white. Um, but he was exceedingly shy, so shy and so reticent, not speaking a word, that his parents thought something was wrong with him. They even took him to the doctor uh, because they just figured that something's wrong. I mean, can he not hear? Can he not respond? He wasn't speaking any words. And the doctors checked him out and said, we, we don't find anything wrong. And um, he was three years old, about three years old, and he had not spoken. And one night, suddenly over supper, as the story goes, he blurted out, this soup is too hot. And like his parents like cried tears of joy. And they were just like, this is amazing, he's amazing. Like he's speaking, he's talking, he gave us a whole sentence. This soup is too hot. And, and they said, Albert, Albert, why didn't you say anything before? And he said, up to now, everything's been just fine. <laughs> The power words. And I have to say, the book says, we don't, we don't have any way of verifying the total veracity of that story. <laughs> but it, was, it, it sounded harmonious with the way that he was raised. But the power words. And um, I, I was thinking, and it's probably good I wasn't able to do it, but I was thinking it'd be really cool. I could set up a little sermon illustration. I could have bubbles on one side and bottle rockets on the other. And um, I think because those two are often the way we think about words. If I had bubbles, you know, and took them out and, you know, blew the bubbles, we'd say that's, you know, of no real consequence. They're just going to go pop, poof, and, they, you know, they won't even reach the ceiling and make any imprint on the ceiling. Bubbles. And we often think of words that way. But I would submit to you that the scriptures would tell us that we ought to think of um, our words more like bottle rockets, maybe more like ballistic missiles, <laughs> Because words in, in the Bible have incredible power. I mean, we know that the force of all creation, and this is my first point, the force of all creation came about because God spoke words. In the beginning, God said, and he just gave this command, let there be. And, and so there were manifestations and, and separations and life-giving impartations, and it all came about by the word of God. That's creation. But not only creation, the Bible tells us that this whole planet and how the atoms hold together uh, and, and the orbit of the planets, which is just a whole incredible miracle uh, of how we're spinning and rotating through space, it says that Jesus Christ holds all of that together in Colossians 1. And in Hebrews 1, it says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his nature and he sustains all things by his powerful word. Amen. If he were to stop saying, continue sun, continue stars, continue gravity, it all would just fold in on itself. And we know that not only the sustaining of creation moment by moment, but the redemption of creation comes by Jesus who is called the word who became flesh, the, the communication from God, the one who perfectly understands him, he became flesh and he dwelt among us and 
He came that we might receive his glory as from the one who is full of grace and truth. And, and so our words, our words are a powerful, powerful force. And we are, we are encouraged to think of them that way. One theologian, Jack Deere, said this. He said, the only legacy that lasts is written on the hearts that you and I help to bring closer to heaven. I love that phrase. The only legacy that lasts is written on the hearts of the people that we help to bring closer to heaven. And I would, I would say, I don't think this is an exaggeration. Think about this, that the, the world we live in personally is basically the combined, uh, accumulated impact of the words that we say or fail to say. I, I would say that's true for virtually the world of relationships. You could, de you could define you know, a friendship is basically the accumulated result of what is shared from friend to friend or not spoken. It creates the whole context. And, and maybe you could add to that what is able to be heard. Or you could say the relationship between a parent and a child is just the, the physical manifestation of all of the communication that is given from parent to child, child to parent. You could say that of a marriage, the quality of a marriage. The intimacy of a marriage is simply the accumulated result of the words and the communication. And sometimes, yeah, we speak, we speak in some non-articulated syllables, right? There are other ways of communication, but communication is really revelation. And that revelation becomes the reality that we live in. So I know you could, preachers tend to say this about every sermon, but there's probably no other sermon that is more important for us to deal with as believers, if you have come to faith in Christ as an index of where we are and if, as, a, as an index of the quality of life that we are going to enjoy, uh, there's nothing more important than, than the words that we speak. I mean, you, you can think of it this way. I mean, today in this incredible game that's going to be played, <laughs> the words that will call those plays in the huddle, what is communicated from the quarterback who functions as a kind of head, right? Maybe not calling all the plays, receiving that from headquarters, you know, and, and then speaking those words. And then that sets in motion how that whole sequence of events that will end in a victorious parade in a few weeks, right? That we hope, right? But it's, it's words, it's ideas, it's concepts that are spoken and given out. So they're extremely important. And the first point that our, our text really uh, is, makes is do not let any unwholesome talk proceed from your mouth. So this is, is the negative part. And uh, so the first point is words are important. Second point is we need to filter out the bad. But you know, we might prefer the Albert Einstein solution. Well, then I just won't say much. Proverbs 17 says, even a fool when he's silent will be thought to be wise. But that's not the whole biblical truth. Um, but it is a start. <laughs> it is a start. And he says, let no unwholesome talk. And the actual word he uses is just the word for rottenness, putrid rottenness. And there are categories of words that the Bible says you never go into. A couple weeks, we're going to look at coarse, uh, like jesting, sexualized talk, double entendre, but everybody knows there really is a underbelly meaning. He says that should, there should not be even a hint of that among a believer. Um, words of slander, words that carry on evil reports. 
And, and this goes contrary to a world that says, well, why can't I say it? I'm feeling it, why can't I just say it? it it's not talking about repression, it's talking about interpreting and realizing that there are words that are unworthy to be said. And why does scripture say that? Because when we speak unworthy things, we reinforce them. And so it's not saying go through life fake or repressing, but it's saying have a guard, have a filter. Uh, be your own referee uh, before you bring that out into the light of everyone else and say, there are words that we ought not to say. There are conversations, there are statements that we ought not to make. And there, James chapter three says, let not many become teachers because he says, for we all stumble in what we say. He said that, you know, the illustration he uses is that every kind of animal in the world has been tamed or domesticated by someone except the tongue. <laughs> And so we all stumble in many ways. It just makes it more impressive to look at Jesus. I love what G.K. Chesterton said about Jesus. He says, the proof for Jesus' divinity, just read the gospels, because he says, no one has ever come up with a word that Jesus ought to have said. Isn't that profound? Can anybody say that about themselves? Nobody's ever come up with a word. I've never thought of how I could have said it better. Oh my goodness. Every conversation, we can Monday morning quarterback, right? And say, ah, oh, this could have gone better. I could have said this, I wish I'd said this. Even when we plan a tough discussion and write it, we're like, yeah, but this could have, but not Jesus. So he is, he is the standard. Um, the best discipleship course I've been part of was by a fellow named Jack Miller. It was called the Sonship Discipleship Course. And one of the earliest assignments that Jack Miller gave was called the tongue assignment. He said like, this was kind of the entryway into discipleship. Um, and he says, for the next week, what, what he assigned and what we, we sought to do uh, were these six commands. He says, for the next week, you were to keep track of this tongue assignment and you were to keep a little notebook with you to write how you do and note failures. He says, you were not allowed to complain or grumble at all. Zero tolerance, no complaining or grumbling. Secondly, you're not allowed to boast about anything at all. Third, you're not allowed to gossip or repeat bad information about someone else. Fourth, you're not allowed to run someone down, even a little bit. Fifth, this proved to be one of the harder ones, and you're not allowed to defend yourself or make any excuses whatsoever. If you're late for something, doesn't matter if you were caught behind traffic. Can't even say it. And six, you must always find a way to affirm people when you're in their presence. And he said, you know, when we, when we gathered back together, he says, look, if you can keep it for even an hour, watch out because you're not allowed to boast. <laughs> but this was the assignment that basically was the on-ramp to realizing how much we need the constant grace of God flowing into our lives. Powerful assignment. And, and so the first part of this, again, is to filter out what's negative. It, it was uh, the Catholic teacher, Fulton Sheen, I, I love this little phrase he says, he says, criticism of others, he said, was an oblique form of self-commendation. He says, we think that we can make our pictures hang straight on the wall by telling our neighbors that all their pictures are crooked. <laughs> but it doesn't work that way. But, but when justification by faith alone through Jesus is not freeing us in our own hearts, what we do is we're on Rome looking for justification somewhere else. And so if we're not living justified by faith in the shed blood of Jesus, what we look for is justification by comparison to someone else. And, and so you find this all the time. I used to find, 
I haven't heard this as much recently, but I, I used to find it when you would talk to a non-believer about sin, they would say, well, at least I'm not a murderer. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know that was a standard. <laughs> but, but it was just like this, there was conviction coming and there was like, I've got to find a release point and I, the only place I can find it is by comparison. Uh, the definition of gossip arises from this. The definition of gossip I heard is gossip when you hear something you like about someone that you don't like. It's probably gossip. You hear something that you like about someone you don't like. And gossip is often really, in reality, it's not so much what you say, but it's who you say it to. If you said it to someone's face, it might be critical, it might be unkind, but it's not gossip. But you say it behind their back. It's gossip. I love the Stephen Covey rule, um, which kind of clears away a lot of fog when he says you should never talk about someone in their absence in a way that you would not talk about them when they are present. So those are, those are all examples of unwholesomeness. And, and Luke chapter six again says it, it, the solution has to run deeper than just our speech. The speech are the symptoms, right? That drive us to be seekers after grace. But Jesus said this in, in Luke's version of his Sermon on the Mount. He says, a good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. But an evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks out of that which overflows the heart. So when I misspeak in a way that, that is unrighteous, I wanna just say it's a slip of the tongue. But Jesus won't let me off that easily. He's like, yeah, but there's a meditation of the heart. And if you trace it, ultimately that, that heart is, if you trace it, and you, in other words, a rope tied from those words to my heart, and I were to pursue that rope, eventually I, that rope would lead me to a throne, and there's something on the throne that is determining what I am speaking. Because we are always worshiping something. We are always, always toggling for revolution, resolution somewhere. And so our, my misspeaking the wrong words or even being silent in a place where I should affirm means that I am distracted and there's a different form of worship going on. So again, this makes us all think, okay, Proverbs 17, even a fool when they're silent, I'll just won't say much. <laughs> I'll do the Albert Einstein approach, but the problem with that is that he moves on in this text and he says, but speak what is helpful for building others up. Now here again is that concept, words build. It's so a word of edification is the word. So words are building something. Words are building our relationship health. Words are building our lives. Words are building our mental health. Amen. We, all of those things are being built. And he says, so here's the purpose of words. Say what is helpful. You've, you've heard, right? Most of us had mothers or grandmothers who said, you know, is it necessary? Is it helpful? Is it kind? Um, probably we could add to that and say, am I the one who's supposed to convey this? Um, but, but here he's, Paul is the originator of this where it, through the Holy Spirit. He says, only what is helpful for building others up. And then note what he says, according to their needs. So evidently, other people get to tell me how I'm doing at encouraging them. I can't just self-grade. So what builds others, and it says again, that it may benefit those who listen. Here he's speaking of the, the impact on the bystanders of our words and so we can't just be silent. Ecclesiastes 3.7 says there is a time for silence and a time to speak. Uh, the novelist Dostoevsky said this, he says, much unhappiness has come into the world 
because of things left unsaid. And here, the command is that we can't just stop at getting rid of the unwholesome talk, but we should, you know, the words of the righteous are a tree of life. They're described as a fountain of life in Proverbs. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. But there are times when we must speak up, even when we are going to have to resist what's around us. Again, it's a G.K. Chesterton quote, but he says, you know, uh, if something is swimming against the stream, it's alive. If it's carried along the stream's path, it's, it's probably dead. <laughs> but, but things that are alive can bring a kind of resistance. And here's the reality. If you are alive in Jesus Christ, you will find that you have to resist your own circumstances, your own hearts, the, um, the inclination or the things that you wanna give your attention to in order to speak. Many people know Proverbs 31 as the chapter of you know, the awesome superwoman, right? That's, that's the chapter. Um, but right before that chapter, I think it talks about her offspring. It talks about the offspring of a righteous woman and a righteous dad. And let me just read this to you in Proverbs 31.8 where it says, to the, to the children. It says, open your mouth for people who cannot speak. Open your mouth for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the poor and needy. And, and I think what it's saying is that the, the righteous woman, the righteous father, they raise offspring, they raise a generation that are willing to stand up and to speak and to go against the flow, to go against uh, what is easy. And this is the call of God. God said, God complained about his prophets and his preachers, and I'm sure this, this can be apt at times. It's not only um, things I say that are wrong, but it's sometimes things that I refrain from saying when I should speak. Uh, and Isaiah 56 says, God complains this way. He says, my watchmen are blind. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark. They are dreamers lying down who love to slumber. They are dumb dogs who cannot bark. I need to think of this every time my schnauzer sounds the alarm. <laughs> he is pretty unfailing in that. Um, that there is a place for us to say, when God calls, we, we cannot be bystanders. Uh, we cannot be passive bystanders. It's uh, what... Uh, Martin Luther King said when he said, we will remember the silence of our friends more than the wounds of our enemies. Uh, a bystander can, can often do more damage than a bully. You know, you expect a bully to be a bully. But it's if, if you're being beaten and there's so-called friends who are just standing there and doing nothing, that, that's another kind of wound. I, I, I recently had a friend and it was kind of an uncomfortable situation. There was somebody who had been part of a fountain of bitterness that was just, it was almost a caricature of, of me. And I was like, eh, all right, whatever. He had, and, um, he had encountered this person and it happened to be a very committed Christian who had just been subject to a fount of just bitterness and untruths. And it was just so amazing. My wife and I were like, you know, that was so encouraging because it's so rare to see courage. My friend basically said to this guy who was a preacher, he said, how much is the devil paying you? Because it's Satan who is the accuser of the brethren. And you are accusing someone who I know really personally. They, I did not know this person personally. They had picked up some crazy report that was demonstrably just untrue. And I want to just say with that, like, 
I love what um, my mentor Jack Miller used to say. He used to be often accused, even in the Philadelphia papers, because there was so much spiritual revival going on through the churches he was pastoring, accused of all kinds of things. And he said, he wrote a letter to them, and he says, if you really knew my heart, you would know that I'm a lot worse than you think I am. <laughs> Signed sincerely, Jack Miller. Love that. Love that. He didn't defend himself in the midst of it. But, but it certainly would be right for him to have friends who said some of these, these things that are false, where are they coming from? And, and the Bible talks about that. The Bible does not want us to be bystanders, even to bullying. The Bible does not want us to be bystanders to gossip or unrighteous speech. We, you know, and a very effective approach to shut down something that is gossip to say, oh, well, um, we'll have to go and tell this person exactly what you're telling me and see what they say. Like, right now. Oh, you don't wanna go right now? Oh, well then maybe we shouldn't have this conversation. Right, That's, that takes a, a very powerful, a person who is possessed of their mission with their words, what they'll listen to, what they won't listen to. Um, so don't be bystanders, that, which means that you, you've got to move beyond just kind of a frothy positivity. You've got, you've got to move to be a person who will say even things that have an edge. But then he really moves, and this is the final thing, he wants our words to be productive. Um, again, our words must be productive. And this is, this is a section of a, a novel that I love. I don't think it's, it's not a popular read, but it's by Marilyn Robinson. It's the novel Gilead. And her, her father is the preacher in this novel um, and, and the one that she bases her writing on. And here's something that I think was a counsel from her father in their home. And here's, here's what she, how she writes it. She says, whenever you and I encounter another person when we have dealings with anyone at all, she writes this, she says, it is as if a question is being put to you. You must think, what is the Lord asking of me in this very moment, in this situation? I love that question. We gotta slow down if we're gonna ask that question. It says, every time a person comes to you, they are an emissary of God, and the question that our hearts should be asking is, how does God want me to respond in this situation? And she responds, she goes, if that person brings you insult or antagonism, your first impulse will be to respond in kind. But if you think, as it were, this is an emissary sent from the Lord and some benefit is intended for me. First of all, the occasion for me to demonstrate my faithfulness to the Lord I serve. The chance to show that I do in some small degree participate in the grace that saves me and I am free to act otherwise than my circumstances would seem to dictate. She goes on and says, you're free to act by your own lights, but you're also free at the same impulse. You can hate or resent that person, and that person would probably laugh at the thought that you're thinking in your heart that, God, you have sent this person to me for my benefit and their benefit. But she says, that's the perfection of the disguise. God sends these people to us in disguise, but they're emissaries for us to ask the question, what does God want us to say in this moment? And again, that's, that's where we say, a, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only living things can go against it. And that's where our life becomes this, this constant refrain of what we sang, Lord, I need you in this moment so that I can reflect you. Um, and that, that is the beauty of words that are spoken out of a guided heart. Proverbs 25, 11, you've heard it. It says, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. And those words are different to different situations. 
A, a challenge about words comes from 1 Thessalonians 5.14, where Paul writes this. He says, we urge you, brothers. He says, here's what I want you to do with your words. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. And help the weak. Each of them needs something different. You know, if you, if you admonish the faint-hearted, you were going to lay a burden on them that will cause them to collapse. You know, um, if, if you help the idle, you're going to just be enabling them to continue to move through life uh, without any strength on their own part, to muster any of the strength that God would call them to muster. You don't want to do that. So he says in each case, understand their condition. It takes some prayer. It takes some thought, some insight. Maybe it takes some tentativeness to say, I wonder, are you being too passive in this situation? If you are, God would provide a place of action. Sometimes you just ask questions. But I love how Paul in, in ends this statement. He says, you know, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and then the clinger, and the one that really convicts me of sin, he says, but be patient with all of them. <laughs> that, that is the kicker, right? It's the first word Paul uses to describe love. Love is patient. People are on our timetable. Uh, it's what he says to the preacher in his, it's one of his final penned words in 2 Timothy 4, where he says, you know, preach the word, you know, be faithful in season, out of season, whether they want to hear it or not. But then he says, but do it with great patience and careful instruction. The timetable is, is not ours, and that often comes through um, in, our, in our words. And so who is equal to this? I, I hope that if, if there's nothing else what this would, would say to us if you've been walking with Christ for decades, would just say that there is, there is no one equal to this. I don't know when Isaiah the prophet was called, but you know the scene of his calling where he was taken up into the throne room and, and he saw, uh, John makes it very clear in the Gospel of John when it quotes these verses, he saw Jesus Christ on that throne and, and the train of his temple filling up um, that throne room. And you remember what Isaiah said. <laughs> He said, woe, God, woe is me, I'm a person of unclean lips. And, and the angel had to take a hot coal from the altar and bring it as an image of the purification of God and, and, and bring it to him. And kind of the, the sequence is, woe is me, and then lo, um, a hot coal, you know, um, uh, woe is me, um, and then lo, God can make me his instrument. And then, here am I, send me. Go, whoa, low, go. That's the sequence of our life. We don't stay in woe. Uh, we, we bring our woe to the point till then God strengthens us. If you're, if you're in woe, you're, just, you're just wallowing in your own sin. God doesn't want us to wallow. He wants us to arise out of that and come into a place of worship and say, low, I'm, I'm your emissary. And then to say, God, I'll go. I'll go, flawed person that I am, person that will have uh, all kinds of imperfections to say, um, that's what God says. The problem is not just our words, but it's, it's our heart that reveres the, the one who is worthy of us revering him. And, and I love just a few chapters, uh, well, many chapters later in Isaiah 50, verse four, one of my favorite verses that describe Jesus' ministry. It was the, you know, Isaiah has all these little portraits of Jesus. Uh, and in Isaiah 50, verse four, it, Jesus is, is presented here as saying, the Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens me to my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord has opened my ear 
and I was not disobedient or turned back. I love that description of Jesus. It goes on to say that he, he gave his back to those who slashed him. He gave his beard to those who pulled it out. But he says, I gave my ears. I gave my ears to ask my father, what should I say? That incredible dependence of Jesus, that which motivated him to pray and seek his father, that which caused him to say, and I don't even understand exactly how this worked, but Jesus says, I only speak the things that I hear my father saying. I only do the things that my father is telling me to do. Wow, that is perfection on a grand scale. How did Jesus get there? He got there because he was constantly tuning his heart as the only perfect holy one, but he, he executed an entire life where not only were his words never tainted with anything unrighteous, his heart and his perceptive faculty was never tainted with any fog, and, and he was able to give himself to, the, to that ministry of speaking words that bring life. Speaking, speaking words, sometimes they expose people, but never um, to discard people, but rather to call people to step out of darkness into life. That is the whole pathway of Jesus. His whole life is our textbook. And it's what it means to be renewed in the knowledge of our creator, what Ephesians 4 is talking about. It means when we are renewed, when we've given ourselves over to Jesus Christ, there is this irrepressible movement in our lives and it will show up. And ultimately it will show up in the words that we bring and then in the edification that we bring and in what we actually build around our lives. And it comes to us as we come freshly to the cross that cleanses us that redirects us, that intercepts us, and makes, us, makes our words a fount and a force for Jesus. That's what he would call us to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the perfection of Jesus, and we, Lord, we don't deserve to be spoken with, to with such wonderful, merciful, beautiful words, but you have spoken these words to us. And Lord, may we receive them May those of us who know you receive them as encouragement, Lord, to live in the, in, the, in the dance of this life, constantly turning toward you and then living that out toward others. What a beautiful calling you've given us, all of us. May, if anyone here doesn't know you, Lord, may they awaken to the power of your word and to that most powerful word that says, if anyone thirsts, let them come. Whosoever will, let them come and let them drink deeply of the one who brings life and cleansing and mission to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing with us as we sing about being children of God. Sing with conviction. But he brought me in all his love for me. Oh, his love for me. Who the sun sets free, oh, he's free indeed. I 
are none like those words that we've received. Say, before I pronounce a blessing on you, you can uh, uh, pray for me and also know that we're, that's why I'm taking off. I'm getting on a plane to, with Seth McNaughton uh, to go to the ECO. That's our fellowship of churches. Uh, lots of different fellowship of churches. Um, I was part of the OPC originally. That's the only pure church. Orthodox Presbyterians. <laughs> then I was part of the Presbyterian Church of America uh, for a long time. That's the purest church of all. And um, I really like ECO because that's like every congregation on board. Come y'all, let's get serious about discipleship. And um, we're gonna hear some great speakers like Rick Warren and different folks share a ministry experience. And we're also looking for staff because uh, we're growing as a church. We're ready uh, and we don't wanna miss the opportunities. We're You'll hear it next week. I'll let you in on a secret. We're going to share about a second service that will be coming soon, probably at the end of next month. I want to share with you details, let you in on that secret. But we're growing. We're sensing God's work, and it's exciting to be looking for who's the person God's already picked out for some of these key places here to join our already awesome staff team. You have such a great team already here. So um, pray for us as we go to California and, and admire our sacrifice because Seth and I will probably not be able to watch the Eagles come into victory uh, and we'll be with Californians on that airplane. <laughs> so testing, it'll be testing us. So, but God is sufficient. Um, so let's now leave this place. A benediction is when we, we have the name of God placed on us and we carry the reality of the God who we experienced here out into our everyday life. That's what a benediction is. And so open your heart to receive this. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. To him be the glory forever and ever. And God's people said, amen. Amen.